calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. So welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster. I'm your host, but this week I have sort of a, it's not really a co-host situation. I feel like you're really going to be guiding a lot of what's going on. I'm bringing on Lana Wood Johnson, who is my very dear friend, also the muse of this podcast, because the whole idea for this came for Vulgar History in general was I was reading about Caroline of Brunswick and I just kept texting you screen captures of this biography of her. I was reading Lana. Guess what else she did? Like Lana, she started just amassing babies. Lana, (laughs) these things. And then here we are many episodes later. Also, I'm going to let Lana introduce herself with many details, but I will say that she's also here in her role as a Habsburg expert because anyone who's listened to the um, Q&A episodes knows that I have like sort of an allergy to just like reading anything about any Habsburgs. But Lana is always there with the info. And we're going to be talking about the first Habsburg on the show, Habsburg by marriage, which is Empress Elizabeth of Austria. (laughs) Lana is already making a face. I feel like, was she a Habsburg by marriage? Maybe I got it wrong. Lana Wood Johnson, please introduce yourself to everybody. So Hi, I'm Lana Wood Johnson. I am a young adult contemporary author, and the two books that I have out are Technically You Started It, which um, is another reason Anne and I are friends, is because it was inspired by the return of Martin Guerre, so, uh, which it didn't end up being very return of Martin Guerre, but I, I was inspired by it. And my second book is Speak for Yourself, which is a Cyrano de Bergerac retelling. And that is my, that is my writing credits, but my history credits are, I have a uh, BA in history. Uh, I studied mostly population sciences, but uh, demography, uh, how people moved, disease. And I also studied uh, the industrial revolution, but because I took nine years of German, I have a soft spot for the Habsburgs and the very weird history that they have to live through that they guided and weren't always very excited to be a part of. And sometimes they were very, very interested in being in charge of history. So um, I strong-armed and into doing a CC episode, even though she's very much not the kind of woman that Anne typically does stories about, but hopefully she loves her anyway, the way I do. I want to talk about that aspect of things, because I will say I've known for a long time that Cece is Lana's person in the same way that like Francis Howard is my person, like just a historical person who you're just a fangirl for. And I've never read up on Cece until preparing for this episode. And oh, actually, I want to mention, too, one of the reasons that we're doing this episode also is because on my Patreon, I put a poll of saying like, I'm having so much fun doing the international season. Here's a list of people who have been suggested. Please vote on who you think I should do. Cece ran away with that poll. And I was like, oh, okay. Here's 
Atlanta, I think he said that I, I might have stacked the deck somehow. And I'm like, I didn't. I was just like, here's a bunch of people I don't know about. Anyway, so I know there's enthusiasm. So that's one of the benefits of being on the Patreon. You can help me choose topics. But also knowing that Lana was so passionate about her, I'm like, okay, I'll do CC. And one of the reasons, I don't know, one of the reasons that I haven't really read up on her before or considered her for this podcast before was I, like perhaps many other people out there, just had this overall impression that she was just like, it's just a sad story of a woman with long hair. And I was just like, well, that's, that's not what I do. I talk about cool people. And then in researching it, I started learning all these cool things about Cece. And yet all the articles I was finding were all like, the headlines were all like the anorexic depressed Royal or like Cece, her tragic diet, like even like National Geographic and stuff were just like this sad woman. And I'm like, so we're here to do some like reputation repair to be like, like this was a very important part of her story the mental health stuff, the disordered eating stuff. But to me, like my shorthand for this is always just being like Fred again. She was a wife and mother. It's like, yes. And 75 other things. So Cece, we're here to, um, I've gone on this journey of realizing she's actually very interesting. And now I'm hoping to take you all on this journey as well. So uh, the sources I was looking at so just her Wikipedia page, which has got quite a bit of information on it. There's a biography from 1966, um, which I'm going to read excerpts from because it could not be more of a 1966 book in a very fun way. The Lonely Empress, Cece of Austria by Joan Haslip. I also read a 1988 book, The Reluctant Empress, a biography of Empress Elizabeth of Austria by Brigitte Hamann, translated from the German. An article from History Today um, that's called The Anorexic Empress an article from history.com, The Tragic Austrian Empress, an article from historyofyesterday.com, The Tragedies and Triumphs of Cece's Sisters, and then something else from Metropole, Five Things About Elizabeth or Cece. But even just like the articles are all like, the tragic anorexic, like, fuck off. Len, I see you've added some references. What were, what were yours? Well, I just threw in a couple that I literally have lying around the house. Um, I have the... CC Tashin book because she is a very photogenic empress that people like to not only take pictures of but draw pictures of and she was actually we'll cover this later but she was the very first person that was photographed by a paparazzi that's not in here but that's like photography is a very big thing for her we'll, we'll talk about her images later yeah and then um, I also have um, the Habsburgs embodying empire because it's just nice to have your very own Habsburg family tree back to the beginning of time and maps of their various empires back to the beginning of their time. Just lying around the house. Normal people do that, correct? I mean, I'm pretty sure I have a book like that and I don't even care about the Habsburgs. So yeah, normal people. And that one's by Andrew Wheatcroft and it's from uh, Penguin. And then the Habsburg Monarchy, 1809 to 1918, the history of the Austrian Empire and, the, and Austria-Hungary, which is different than the Holy Roman Empire Habsburgs. This is, this is after they traded it away to Napoleon, the Holy Roman Empire and, and all their foreign holdings. They lost Spain, they lost the Dutch, which Anne has already covered lightly in the past, but now they have, <laughs> um, because uh, Treaty of Westphalia, I mean. <laughs> that was, that was Christine of Sweden, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm almost, no, I'm not almost, I am proud in a way that I've come this far on the podcast and I've never had to talk about the Habsburgs. <laughs> How have I done so much stuff predominantly about European history and avoided them? It took some effort, but I've done it. But here we you are. Staying fairly Protestant. That, that's the way to do that's it, is staying very Protestant. Yeah, I don't know. But now I'm at a point where I can see a portrait. And I'm just like, that's a Habsburg, isn't it? I can recognize them. But Cece, I am correct, right? She's a Habsburg by marriage. She's a Habsburg by marriage. She's um, Bavarian nobility. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. a weird little bit of the Holy Roman Empire that was not like the others. God, this is not a video podcast, so you can't see me constantly rolling my eyes and 
making faces at the fact that I'm just like that part of Europe. It's like I've I'm like, okay about like Spain, Portugal, France, like I don't even know at this point, like Turkey. But I'm just like there's this giant hole in my knowledge of historical Europe. And it's basically just like that. It's like where that's where I live. Where where Germany now is, I'm just like, I can't get into that because it's like sometimes it's called this and sometimes it's called this and the people speak German, but it's not Germany yet. I'm just like, what if I just don't ever learn about it? Could I get by in life? No, because then I wouldn't know about Cece. And this is a great story. I need now I need to make you do a, a so this asshole on Bismarck. <laughs> I I don't even know who that is, but sure. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. <laughs> I'll announce it on the podcast because why not? At some point, Len is going to join me on Patreon for So This Asshole, Queen Victoria. But that's like in the future because that's her historical nemesis. nemesis. She's her nemesis. Yeah. And it'll be our first lady asshole. So Empress Cece, before we get into the saga and the story, could you explain? This is one of the first questions I asked you when I first started reading the biographies like two weeks ago. was like, what? Because I really want to understand where you're coming from, Lana. So like, what about her? Like, why is she your person? Why does she stand out to you? Well, I think because so much of her story has become her mental illness um, and, and the various aspects of her mental illness that make her something to gawk at. A lot of, I write the, I write those young adult contemporary novels about girls that have problems, um, generally anxiety disorder or um, migraines. And then that is not the plot. That is not who they are. It's a thing that they that they live with. So Cece is like that perfect example of her mental illness and how she how she copes is an interesting thing about her, but it's not even remotely who she is. It's it's a it's something that she had to work around to be who she was going to be. But very, very rarely do you get someone with the amount of money and power and influence of someone like Cece. And she's like, I just really want to learn Greek. Like, I really want to do something useful. This is not useful. Being, being Empress is not useful. It's not important. And she would, she would have loved being a modern queen where yeah. she actually got to go. Like if she could get a, a degree in medicine, like she would have done that. She would have been a psychiatrist so fast. Mm-hmm. so fast oh my god yeah no we're gonna talk about that but she was like very interested in um me- in le- reading about mental illness and mental illness treatment and stuff but yeah I kept trying to be like to pin her down at first I was like oh and this is partially because of just like the articles and the angles that people write about it where it's like oh is this like a princess diana situation and Lana was like no <laughs> it was in the sense of it's like a person who has a very modern sensibility who marries into this very ancient institution and then is depressed and has disordered eating. But like Princess Diana was a lot of other things too. But a crucial difference here is that Cece's husband adored her. Like she wasn't, there wasn't- That's huge. Yeah, she was not married to a Prince Charles-like figure. There's not a Camilla type looming presence. She was very noble in her, like she was raised to be mm-hmm. a leader. Well, as raised to be, well, any bit of Bach was raised to be a, like, she was, she was raised within the circles of nobility. She wasn't, she was an outsider that was brought in because she was the most likely or, or easiest person to control. She was brought in literally because of her family connections. She's right because of her family connections. And then he chose her on purpose. He wasn't just like, oh, I guess you. I mean, of of two options, he chose her on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there is a bit of, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like the fact that, because I could see more connection between Princess Diana and like Caroline of Brunswick, where it's like you marry a man who's in love with his mistress and he like actively works to undermine you. So that was not Cece's thing, but. I don't know. I just kept trying to be like, who, who can I, I don't know. I was just trying to match her to different things in my head. And where I landed on was like Betty Draper and Mad Men slash the thing of like the 1950s housewives who were just like women. So Betty Draper, I'll use an example. Like she went to university, she got a degree and then she did everything she was supposed to do. She like appeared beautiful. She was a model. And then she got married and it's like, okay, just stay home and like not do anything for the rest of your life. And she was so intellectually she wanted to be doing things and she couldn't do things. The whole, like, what is it? It's like, it's not called housewives depression or something, but like this generation of like women who just like were in the suburbs, it's like, okay, now you can be a wife and mother. And they're like, this should make me happy. Like quote unquote, 
but it doesn't like CC wanted so much and her life would not let her do those things. My modern equivalent is um, Steed's wife from Our Flag Means Death. Perfect. Yes. And just trying to find a, you know, what is her doing an art show? And it is, the story is often just, again, in like these articles I've been looking at or books and podcasts, it's just like her life is like a fairy tale. And it's like, stop that. But also there are fairy tale connections, castle ones, but we'll talk about those. But her like childhood is, it reminds me of like a Disney fairy tale. So Elizabeth Emily Eugenie was born on Christmas, December 24th, 1837 in Munich, Bavaria. She was the third child and second daughter of Duke Max, or he's always called Duke Max and things, Duke Maximilian Joseph and Princess Ludovica of Bavaria. Um, Ludovica was the half-sister of King Ludwig of Bavaria. So Max, her dad, was considered to be rather peculiar. If we're going through Disney archetypes, he's kind of like Belle's father in Beauty and the Beast sort of vibes, except he was like the Duke (laughs) and was not supposed to just be like, doing intellectual experiments all the time. What else are Duke supposed to do, though? Come on. (laughs) So Duke Mack, I want to read, this is a quote from the 1966 book. Born in the enviable position of having adequate means without large possessions or encumbrances, he lived according to his moods. A mediocre poet and a worse playwright, he fancied himself as an artist, surrounding himself with writers and musicians, mostly men of humble birth, with whom he frequented the various taverns of the town. Such talents as he possessed consisted in playing the zither and in trick circus riding. So that's the dad. He's just kind of like, like, this is what I like to do. So I'm just going to do these things. And you know, I'm going to fight anybody that says you have to be, just because you write poetry and you're not like public, like writing is writing. Like you do it because you want to, you don't have to be good at it. Like, no, you gotta he, get your stuff out. <laughs> he liked doing it. Yeah. Later on, Cece also writes poetry and like a couple of different things were like, and her poetry was bad. And I'm like, yeah, well, she wasn't writing it to do anything other than just she liked writing it. Like, yeah. it's not a gig oh. economy. Yeah. Correct. So, so Duke Max had a lot of hobbies he liked to do. He and Ludovica did not get along super well because he was often off traveling. There was one thing where he, I forget where he went. He went on lots of trips. He went on a trip and he came back with three um, black children. And he was like, You're good. these are going to be your new playmates. And the kids were like, Madeira? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they have so. holding in Madeira. Why do I know that? I just do. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and Cece goes there later. Yeah. So he was just mm-hmm. like, well, first of all, I want to mention that just to be like, he's a random person, but also just because like there is racist stuff going on. Just, you know, don't forget that. Yeah, so he that's Duke Max. He's he's eccentric. But he and Ludovica they had seven or eight children. It was just like this little gaggle of a picture like the Von Trapp children. After Maria comes when they're just like running around Salzburg singing, it's just like this group of children. They stay like the Mazarinettes, like very close. They grew up very close and then they stayed close as adults. So, and they just kind of like ran wild in the woods. Cece as a kid, she was really interested in um, horseback riding, um, mountain climbing. Like I just picture them like swinging from the trees. Like the kids were just kind of raised. They hung out with peasants. Like they weren't, it wasn't just like, you're the princes and princesses, like, you know, stay in your castle because Duke Max was just like, do whatever. So it was, this comes up a lot. Posenhaven Castle is where they spent their summers. They were at a different castle in Munich during winter. Christmas was always a beloved time to Cece because it's her birthday, but also she German traditions of Christmas, right? That's all the stuff that Albert brought when he married Victoria. So what I wrote here is, yeah, so they were raised far from the protocols of court. Cece and her siblings grew up in a very unrestrained and unstructured environment. She often skipped her lessons to go riding about the countryside. So she grew up playing in Bavarian forests. From her father, she inherited a belief in progressive democratic ideals and pacifism. Uncommon for royalty at the time. Is that, I don't know, it seems like not uncommon for her family, but. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I hate when they say stuff like that. It's like her family was not very interested in being rulers. They just happened to be like, there was no divine right monarchy going on in Bavaria. It's like, I inherited the place. Like, you don't, there's not a lot to defend. It's all mountainous. There's nobody's coming across. It's yeah. not like the, the northern parts of Germany that are basically flat and really great places for the French to fight everybody else. So like, it's not, they don't have to be militaristic. They don't have to be very militant. They don't have to go very far. So they just hang out and have a good time. And right. So it's different from various like, mental illnesses. Yeah. So it's not being like, we're being actively pacifist in the midst of like various wars. They're just being like, well, there's not a war here. So let's just go climb trees and learn circus horse riding skills and have various mental illnesses. Um, from her mother, who she, who was quite hands-on with them. CC developed a love of privacy and a fear of public duties. I don't know if that's true. That's just, I just copy pasted that from somewhere. <laughs> but she and her mother certainly have that in common. Yeah. So her favorite sport was horseback riding. She acquired a reputation as a daredevil and one of the best equestrians of her age later on in adulthood. We'll talk about her horseback riding a bit as an adult, but it was something that brought her joy as a child. So this next section I call House of Wittelsbach slash Ludwig of Bavaria slash. Family History of Madness. So this is kind of like an example because did you know that there's a board game called like the Castles of Mad King Ludwig? I have it. It's my husband's favorite game. Okay. Yeah. No, because I was telling my friend, I'm like, yeah, there's this guy who's mad at <laughs> Mad King Ludwig. Um, and my friend was like, oh, like the board game, the Castles of Mad I'm like, oh, so he's like that well-known. He made three fairy tale castles. Uh, yes. So. It's very important to say madness is the term of the time. Like yes, this yes, is yes. this is something that this is a term that has followed them throughout history. It's not something we're applying to them. Great clarification. Yeah, because there is um I'm we're both going to like abstain from like retroactively diagnosing people's we're going to describe their behavior and we're going to say kind of how people took that at the time but yeah so Ludwig was well, like Duke Max he is an eccentric this, this is Ludwig the second so this is yes. her second cousin not Ludwig that is her grandfather yeah I mean <laughs> it's important to say like these are this is someone that's her age Ludwig yes. the second is her age not an ancestor Definitely. Yeah. So I'm just going to tell you briefly, very briefly, the story of Ludwig II, her contemporary, just to sort of understand the family history. It's a good example of the family history of quote unquote madness, but slash eccentric behavior and kind of how that it followed them around the same way that like um, Juana La Loca or whatever, where it's just like as soon it, or in, nowadays, as soon as somebody says like, oh, so-and-so is crazy the more like everyone just believes that like it's hard to shake that once you've got that reputation and if your family has that reputation and can and you keep intermarrying and like various genetic well, things are passed along and people keep being eccentric they had a lot of traits that that are consistent with um compulsion and possible neurodivergence i yeah. like again i'm not going to diagnose anybody but uh they they got very into very specific things in a and, very Christina of Sweden-esque way. And, and they, they um, were almost compulsive in their way of dealing with those things. Like they just did it to a degree that was possibly unhealthy or unsafe or not always welcome by the person that they were obsessed about at the time. Um, but that's later in the story too. <laughs> so Ludwig. So he was, there was an eight year age difference, but they're similar ages. And especially as adults, they became very close. So Ludwig became king of Bavaria when he was 19 years old. Although he was, this is again, like a lot of what I'm reading is just like copy paste from various articles because they phrase things well, but sometimes not how I would phrase them. Anyway, his youth and brooding good looks made him popular in Bavaria and elsewhere. And if you Google him, hard agree. He was a bit of heartthrob in appearance. He has, he's a very smoldering look in a kind of like Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice way. It involves mutton chops. 
So Ludwig, he, he was very interested in art, music, and architecture. He also was, and when I say music, I mean Wagner. Can That's you, later. <laughs> he cared, he, Wagner. Um, Wagner also my nemesis, by the way. I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that, but I am so anti-Wagner. This is great to know because I don't know anything about anybody German, apparently. Um, yeah, so Ludwig, again, he reminds me behaviorally of Henry VI, who is Margaret of Anjou's husband, just someone who's just fundamentally not the right personality to be the monarch of anything. Like someone who just wants to like peace out and like follow his passions. And it's just, if that's your personality, like... It sucks when you become a king. He would make a very good billionaire's kid. Yeah. And a very terrible head of state. And unfortunately at the time, the only, like they were the same thing. So he was technically head of state just by having all these holdings, like probably lots of people own as much property as he does, but they're not in charge of the people that live there anymore. So like he would have done well being rich. He would have been terrible. He was terrible at leading people. Yeah. He would have just been a cool, like philanthropist, like patron of the arts. Um, Regrettably, he was the king of Bavaria. So yeah. And this made his like various, whatever advisors, all the men around him were just kind of like, Oh, why won't he like do these things we want him to? And he's just like, because I'm busy just like with my sketchbook or whatever. There's this hot guy making music and I want to make him a castle. Okay. (laughs) Deal with it. Um, yeah. So he disliked large public functions and avoided formal social events whenever possible, preferring a life of seclusion with his various creative projects. Which again is just like that's a great kind of person to be, but he was regrettably the king of Bavaria, and those were expectations. Even as a child, his mother had foreseen difficulties because even as a child, and with Cece as well, we see this. Like he was very introverted, very creative. He spent a lot of his time daydreaming. He avoided Munich and participating in government at all costs, which caused tension because he was the king, but the people of Bavaria liked him a lot. Partially because of the smoldering good looks. Being a very hands-on leader isn't that unusual either in a lot of Germany. Like, you want hands-on, you go to Prussia. Like, Bavaria, a lot of, a lot of, okay, so the Holy Roman Empire was like 150 or so different individual nations and nation states and so on and so forth. So they weren't like very led. (laughs) They were just kind of like, like, some of the cities were self-governing. Some of the, most of the duchies were like, yeah, well, we give this guy taxes and he just makes sure the roads work. And that was like, that was basically what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't like a lot of people. It's, it's not Louis Couture stuff. It's not, (laughs) it's not divine right monarchy or anything like that. It's like, I'm the guy who's at the end of the day, I'm in charge. Okay. Yeah. So he wasn't like that far off from everybody that came before him either. Yeah. Your king is just kind of like a cool guy who you kind of know. So he enjoyed traveling the countryside and chatting with farmers and laborers. He delighted in rewarding those who were hospitable to him during his travels with lavish gifts. And he is allegedly, I don't know, someone from Bavaria, let me know. He's still remembered in Bavaria as our cherished king. He never married nor had any known mistresses because he was probably gay. He was, he was very gay. <laughs> <laughs> As evidenced by his diary, private letters, and other documents. But um, the Catholic Church was not down with that, and he was Catholic, and also in his era, homosexual acts between men were illegal in Bavaria. So He was also very German, so he followed rules. Yeah. Rules are important. You have to follow them even though you don't want to. (laughs) Exactly. So he's like eccentric, but he does have a line, I guess. So after 1871, he largely withdrew from politics and devoted himself to his personal creative projects, most famously his castles, for which he personally approved every detail of the architecture, decoration, and furnishing. You would probably recognize some of these castles. Lana, can you explain why? So um, my favorite one of all is Neuschwanstein, which almost everybody will recognize it's it's kind of the definitive fairy tale castle. It's how he got the name Märchenkönig, the fairy tale king. Um, but Neuschwanstein stands on top of a of a mountain, 
And at the bottom of the mountain is a, a castle called Hohenspangau. And it is uh, the castle of the Swan Knights, basically. And that's where he grew up. So he grew up down in Hohenspangau, looking up at this, at this mountain and envisioning it as this giant, like, fairy tale castle, like what he was going to build there one day. So eventually he did. Now it's important to note, unlike a lot of kings, he didn't like drive his nation into poverty to do this cool thing. He just used his own money. Like he was, again, a good king, just not a good king. <laughs> so uh, Neuschwanstein was never actually finished. It was way too big of a project for anyone to do in their lifetime and no one was going to pick it up afterwards. But it is essentially a giant fanfic to Wagner. And each of the rooms is about a different Wagner song. And he used to bring Wagner to the lake to look at it and talk about it. And he's such a fanboy, he's such a fanboy. <laughs> and so he made two other castles, not nearly as, as famous as, as Hohenstein, or as, as Neuschwanstein, it was the Linderhof Palace and the Herrenschimms, Herrenschimsee, which I don't know as well, but those, they're kind of more generic. They're not nearly as fancy as, as Schoenstein. But one of them but, is the, the Disney World castle is based on one of those, right? Disney World castle is based on Schoenstein. Yeah. And then Linderhof Palace and um, the Herren, Herrenschimsee is, um, they're, they're a little bit more the traditional kind of like Frenchy looking palace, chateau looking things. Whereas Neuschwanstein is the full-on swooping castles and everything. Um, I have downstairs a, a picture of Neuschwanstein taken by my grandfather from this very precarious bridge nearby. So it's that stereotypical picture that you do see of Neuschwanstein and a, a little um, ceramic, like not quite a hummel, but you know, one of those, one of those. Uh, figurines that my grandma had. And that was the thing that my grandma bequeathed me because that's how obsessed I was with Neuschwanstein my whole life. Yeah. And I've still never been there despite selling very well in Germany. <laughs> it's um, also, it continues to be like a major like tourist destination. So like his legacy, Ludwig, was like very good for like Bavaria economically. Yeah, he's still bringing in money to that yeah. to that area, to the areas that he did things like even hundreds of 150 years later, almost. Yeah. So my notes here say that these projects, the castles provided employment for many hundreds of local laborers and artisans and brought a considerable flow of money to the relatively poor regions where his castles were built. So he was, as we have just described, very completely not fundamentally the personality type to make his advisors or politicians happy as king. He was eventually deposed due to his behavior. Well, well, at this point, he just kind of was just like, peace out. I'm just going to hang out here and oversee castle construction. And they're like, but you're the king. And he's like, I'm just going to not meet with anyone ever and just make castles. Well, the Christina of Sweden, but in a less interesting way. Yeah. Much less dramatic way. So anyway, so he's eventually deposed. And then, well, after he was, and this was kind of in this era, like his like Southern Castles era is when he and Cece were like very close. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure they saw each other, but they also wrote letters and they were just like very kindred spirits. This is probably why I'm talking about him so much because a lot of what he, like his personality traits are similar to Cece's and this is kind of like the family um, personality well, traits. And he was actually one of the very first people treated by a, um, he was a neuroscientist at the time, but one of the very early psychiatrists, he, he actually did have a professor that, that treated his mental illness hmm. as a mental illness. Um, it's before Freud developed psychoanalysis, but it's that same school of neuroscience that, that Freud was a part of that turned him into a psychologist. And this is like, yeah, so Cece's closeness with him, I guess, what like the treatments he was pursuing for himself and stuff, and just like other family members, like Cece had a lifelong interest in mental health and treatment and symptoms. And part of why I think was because of being really close with him. So just to wrap up the story of Ludwig, <laughs> I summarized this very briefly. 
Um, so one day he went for a walk with a pal and then they were both found dead in a body of water face up with no water in their lungs and signs of having been maybe strangled. And everyone's like, guess they drowned. There's no water in their lungs, but don't worry about it. So what I wrote down here is like he had not expressed suicidal feelings during this era, but there was a belief that maybe he died by suicide, but maybe it might have been murder. It was just kind of a mysterious death in water. And we're going to return later on to where that happened in Cece's life and how that affected her. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Yeah, there's a lot of trigger warnings here for um, suicide, self-harm, <laughs> and other mental illnesses, especially like eating disorders and such. So. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so when we get to those like sections, um, I will mark those in the show notes so people can know like where those are going to come up. And so you can skip past them if that is what you want to do. But yeah, so Cece maintained a lifelong interest in the mentally ill and her treatment later on in life. um, She was asked by her husband, like we're going to talk very quickly about who her husband is, asked her what she'd like to have as a gift for her saint's day. um, She said a fully equipped lunatic asylum would please me most. Another quote of hers is, have you not noticed that in Shakespeare, the madmen are the only sensible ones? So, Cece. This is, that's a little backstory just about her family. Cece herself. So, 1853. So, her aunt, Princess Sophia of Bavaria, was the mother of Emperor Franz Joseph, who was 23 years old. And so it's time for Franz Joseph to find a wife. And Sophia Bavaria was like, I really want to marry my son to a German princess, basically, for like matters of state reasons. And after going through some other options that didn't work out, um, she was like, well, what about? So she's Ludovica's sister, Sophie. And so Cece's oldest sister, Helen, who goes by Nene. I love the nicknames they have, by the way. Like not just because... Helena. Helena. Elena is her sister. We're going to call her Nene because apparently that's what she went by. I love the nicknames. They're very cute. Um, anyway, so 
these two sisters, the mom and the aunt, Sophie and Ludovica are like, okay, so let's like marry our children to each other because we're royals and cousins marry cousins. And that's what's up. So um, Nene was also thought of as the most beautiful of the children. Um, Ludovica and Nene were invited to come to Upper Austria to receive a formal proposal of marriage from Franz Joseph. And Cece, 15 years old at this time, came along too because she had recently had fallen in love with somebody inappropriate and her parents were like, no, you can't be with him. And she just fell into a depression, shut herself in her room. And they're just crying all the time. And they're like, well, you know, she can just come be the companion. Like maybe this trip will cheer her up. And so they're all wearing black because someone had recently died in their family. So they left wearing black, but then the plan was they're going to arrive at the palace and change into their like not black clothes because that's the courtly etiquette. But the trip got complicated because Ludovica had a migraine. And so that interrupted the journey. Something happened where their coach with their fancy dresses never arrived. So when they finally showed up, they were all still in black. And this was like a faux pas. Sophie, we're going to talk about, but she was like all about the etiquette of every little thing about court life. But anyway, notably, this is part of the legend is that wearing all black made Nene with her coloring, like she looked fine. She was cute. But Cece with her like lighter hair and lighter skin, like the black just like looked stunning on her. So suddenly Cece looked more beautiful than her older sister, partially because of black. And then I because Nene was the one who they were going there to like arrange the marriage of. She had like, you know, ladies made, she had her hair all done super fancy and everything. Cece, I just read it like her hair was in long braids. So I don't know if it's literally like two long braids, but she was um, just mostly described as like looking very childlike at this point because she was just like well, a young, she was 15. She was still 15. Like yeah. she wouldn't, she wouldn't have quite have been out. Yeah she wouldn't have been dressed or presented in a way that was like more stiff, like Nene would have. Yeah. But she had, and this is what she really cultivated later in her life, a natural beauty. So there's something about the father really trained the kids, especially the daughters to walk in this exceptionally graceful manner. So just her carriage, like the way she stood, the way she moved was so, and she wasn't there trying to steal Franz Joseph from her sister. She was just there because she was sad about like being broken up with her boyfriend, but her natural gracefulness and beauty without, it's like, you don't know you're beautiful, but like she literally didn't. And her, the well, effect she, she had was quite startling. She was also a lot more charming. Like she had a lot more personality than her sister did. Yeah. And she was a horsewoman. Like equestrians have like balance and grace. Mm, yeah. Time. Not always, but that's okay. You don't have to be, but, but equestrians like like Cece had to have like she had to she had to have a lot of balance or she wouldn't have stayed on the horse to have the stuff she did that's a really good point because like her the way that she walks and moves is described like so many people mentioned that and I think it has to do with what part of what made her such a good equestrian is just she had such her body movements or anyway so she was more spirited she's more interesting um Nene was pious and quiet she and Franz Joseph were not they didn't hit it off but he fell for Cece immediately. Um, so he defied his mother and informed her if he could not have Cece, he would not marry at all. And five days later, their betrothal was officially announced. So this is quite a plot twist for everyone involved. Cece being the younger sister, like as much as she was like a princess and she was educated and stuff, but Nene was the one who was probably being more groomed and taught things. So like Cece... I don't think I have this in my notes, but she like very quickly was just being like, okay, we need to teach you like several different languages you don't know. We need to like teach you about Austria as a country and its history and politics. Like there's just, Cece was not um, raised for this role at all. So they got married eight months later. So those eight months for her like princess diaries makeover era where they're just like, let's quickly teach you everything that maybe you should, the future empress needs to know. So they got married when she was 16 and he was 23 during the wedding festivities, thousands lined Vienna streets eager to catch a glimpse of the new teenage empress. And they were excited. There hadn't been like a young, hot couple royal marriage for quite a while in this time and era. Very long time. They were very excited to have this. In her glass coach on the way to her new home, she was crying. She cried an awful lot. She was overwhelmed and afraid because... 
Well, this is (laughs) social anxiety combined with the fact that she, I think she later described herself as, I forget if I put this quote in here, but she said like, she's moved from like the nursery to being the empress. Like she was a young 15, like, because she had been raised like climbing trees and riding horses and whatever. Like she hadn't been brought up like other women we've talked about on this podcast would have been who had, who were like really taught these, there's so much to learn. There was a lot of rules to learn. She was shy and introverted. She didn't like change. Um, she was so close to her siblings. So suddenly it's like, okay, you're going to move to this other place. You won't be, you won't be allowed to have a confidant anymore, let alone your siblings. Like this is a stressful situation for anyone. And Cece is a person with, who's a very sensitive person, like her social anxiety, like all of this stuff, like this was. And she also like... 16 is about when you start doing all of that finishing training. Like Mm. she would have probably been trained in all this if he'd been even a slight bit patient. Um, (laughs) the, the age difference makes me uncomfortable, but here we are. And then there's his mother Mm -hmm. who, who would have probably gotten along gangbusters with quiet little Nene, but yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we're going to watch Cece's like maturing and her development, like as an adult, which will be later um, because she's still 16, but like she starts off and it's like, she's very emotional in a very relatable way. Like other, like um, Franz Joseph, for instance, who is older, he's 23. And he had been raised to be like stiff upper lip at all times. Like that was probably. Yeah. He's also very military. Yeah. So he was raised to be that sort of person. And this is like, this is a moment where I feel very much the Princess Diana comparison where like she was, she was emotional and everyone was just like, that's gross. That's bad. That's weird. Like what's wrong with you? You're like reacting to things with emotions. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but like I was raised to like have feelings and you, th- this is not a place where you should have feelings. And Cece was clearly very overwhelmed, not just from being away from her family and being so young, but also the rigid protocols and strict etiquette, the people in Vienna were very mean to her because they're just like, who's this? Because I'm sure everyone wanted their daughter to marry him instead of her. But like she didn't, it's like, oh, use that fork for that or whatever. It's just like people were mean to her. There's so much for her to learn. And like, unlike Bavaria, Vienna is very, very rigid and rules. It's for a very long time, they pride themselves on, they've prided themselves on being the center of the universe, basically. Mm-hmm. in a way that only they thought nobody else did but they thought that and and it's a it's it's a very it's almost as structured as as victorian society in a way like mm-hmm. there there are specific forks and specific spoons and like how you eat things and the order you eat them and all of that stuff so like to be part of the society that she would have been thrust into she had to perform in a specific way and to and, be like not just to be entering the society as like the wife of some guy but to be like the wife of franz joseph it's like there's so the much head more. of that society yeah yeah and it's not even just like this is this fork this is that fork it's just also like this is how you like should like move your eyes like if you raise one eyebrow it means this like it's so much to learn she's obviously very overwhelmed and she very immediately developed or began displaying some symptoms of extreme anxiety. Um, Like she became anxious and frightened whenever she had to descend a narrow staircase. She had these coughing fits and that just go. Anyway, she just started getting these like coughing. She had panic attacks. She She had panic. panic I'm full on able to say this because this is how my panic attacks present. Um, If you can't breathe, you start coughing. Like mm-hmm. if your lungs contract, you start coughing. Yeah. Um, I, you start when I'm, when my anxiety goes very high, like I get afraid of things that I would never normally be afraid of. So like this, again, I'm not diagnosing her, but this is the very, very typical de- definition of, of panic attacks when, when your anxiety gets too high and, and your body starts reacting to it. Yeah. So she absolutely starts manifesting this. And then we're going to see this time and time again in the story. As soon as every time she leaves Vienna, all the symptoms leave like, and they're like, Oh, it's like, how that works. It's like, yeah, it's like, she only has tuberculosis when she's in Vienna, but when she leaves, she's like not coughing quote unquote anymore. Remove the trigger. 
Yeah. Your cortisol starts going down. Your body starts responding better. Yeah. So she was just like, in terms of like, this is not just like a personality that's not, doesn't go with this role, but also it's just like her, her health was like right away started being affected by being thrust into this situation. So her husband, Franz Joseph was desperately in love with her, but she was not like they, they also, they had some stuff in common, like horses, but like, he was such a military straightforward person. And she was like a creative, like free thinker. Like that was not the partner for her. So this is, she had this person writes too great and urge for freedom. So, I mean, like if you had grown up climbing trees and whatever she's, and now it's just like, all you can do is be in this castle and like, be careful that you don't like raise your eyebrow wrong all the time or else Sophie is going to like get mad. Like Sophie was not, not a very good Bavarian. She was a terrible Bavarian. I she was an so- excellent Austrian. <laughs> She, I forgot she even was Bavarian. Yeah. So Sophie had acclimated herself very well to the society. And so I guess she was just like, why can't you? Um, and it's like, it's not like Sophie, like this is, this is a t- totally one of those one-sided nemesis situations where Cece resented Sophie for trying to make her be like her. And Sophie's like, yeah, she's an all right daughter-in-law. Like I would have preferred her sister. Like it wasn't, it wasn't both sides. It was Sophie was following the rules and very good at it. And Cece hated the rules. So Sophie was the rules. Yeah. Embodied all of it. So Cece was, she had, so aspirations and desires totally different from those of her practical minded husband. So she liked um, languages. She spoke English and French. Uh, Later, we're going to talk about this. She learns Hungarian and also Greek. She had a special interest in history, philosophy, and literature. Um, she wrote poetry, um, which sort of served as a secret diary. And this is where it's so annoying that people are like, oh, her poems aren't good. It's like, they're not supposed to be. She's just like letting out her feelings. She with- wrote poetry for her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, her poetry relates to her journeys. She goes on lots of trips. We'll talk about um, classical Greek and romantic themes and ironic commentary on the Habsburg dynasty. Good for her, making fun of them. So it's kind of like when um, a a liberal studies major marries an engineer. Like he was, he was a leader of a country. He he was very politically minded. He yeah. he did his job and did his duty and led militaries very well. Like he was a he was really good at that. They had nothing in common, but he thought she was hot. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like he adored her. He loved her, and it's like no, because he didn't like. He thought she was very pretty. And he loved who he, what she he thought she was like, but that's not what she was like. Uh, a phrase just popped into my head that I'm just going to say, like, he was a punk. She did ballet. What more can I say? You know, like, they're just not. But so Cece, and this is again where I'm seeing, like, in this element, some Princess Diana stuff. Um, Cece was popular, popular with their subjects. Um, the people really liked her. They found her relatable and kind of like fun. Do you remember, like, when Jennifer Lawrence like tripped and fell at the Oscars, everyone's like relatable. Like people just liked Cece. The common people. The common people. The common people. people yeah, like sorry. Cece. The common people. And the aristocrats did not. The nobles did not. And then, and there's also the other thing is like the Austro the Austrian Empire, which eventually will become the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's spoilers, but. It's a very large country. We're talking Czechoslovakia, parts of Poland, or um, the Adriatic Sea, most of Yugoslavia. Like this is this is a huge place that that has been very very focused on this small group of upper crust German speaking people for several hundred years, mm-hmm. and and that's how like she came along and she's like, hey, I'm just going to actually come to the hospital and help people. If you're going to give me something, give me more resources yeah. to help people. Exactly. Exactly. So like she, um, she came in unexpectedly to visit ill people in hospitals. And this made like that, which again, it's like the princess Diana, like going to visit the AIDS patients thing where it's just like, oh my God, it's not just like, she's not just being like, oh, I care about the subject. She's like, no, like I want to come here. I want to understand the healthcare system. I want to come to like the like quote lunatic asylums. Like she wanted she went to, there was one thing she went to like a cholera hospital, which was like 
should you be? <laughs> should um today they're terrible places. Like we acknowledge that they're horrible places, but this was even today, mental health care resources are not something people invest in. Like this, this was it's something like it was something they did it at all to, yeah. to have dedicated care facilities. So, and this is the thing where like, you go to the hospitals and that's where you and I, and I think a lot of people listening are like, good. That's like, good. Like, you know, see what's going on. But at the time they're like, not like, she's crazy. Why is she going to hospitals? Like no one understood. But she didn't do it like the modern Royals do it, which is like, like photo op. Yeah. Go yeah. to the hospital, give them, give them a check for a million dollars. She's like, go to the hospital and say, Hey, what can I help? How can I help? Yeah. What can, what can I do? What do you need? Like, let's go talk to some patients and say, Hey, before you died, you met the, the Kaiser. In. <laughs> yeah. No, like she was like for real, like she exactly like it wasn't a PR stunt for her. Like she actually was interested in this stuff, which people found insane. Like that was that's I've seen some writings like of people at the time were just like, she's so eccentric. She goes to hospitals where it's like it, it was a sign of her mental illness when that was just her being herself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and authentic. Right. And this is, again, I'm going to bring up Princess Diana, because it's like, this is the strength and the modernity that she could have offered to this ruling family. And they were just like, you're insane. Go practice which forks to use where it's like, this is what she's bringing to the plate. Like, this is what she can bring to you. And you're just being like, that's insanity. Like, come and just be this like cookie cutter person. Let's see. So I, again, I summarized this. It was in one of the biographies I read. So at one point, so um, a representative from a Protestant faction came to her to ask permission to put a steeple on their church. This is a Catholic country, of course. And she was like, wait, you can't put a steeple on your church? Like where I grew up in Bavaria, that was cool. So no big deal, do it. And this made people be like, oh, she's like religiously tolerant, which she was. But this was, I don't know if she knew the significance of this when she was like, yeah, sure, put a steeple up. Like in Bavaria, that's no big deal. So she was just well, in, in Bavaria. Protestant wasn't wasn't a threat. Like there was yeah. there was no threat to Protestantism. They'd been Catholic that long in what was essentially a Protestant country, that like a Protestant region. That they're like, yeah, be Protestant. Just don't try to take over. <laughs> yeah. So she. Well, this is the thing. She does as she grows up. She learns more about like the political situation and stuff. But at this point, she's just like, sure, that makes sense to me. Where it's like, I don't know, you know, a new person coming into a workplace where they're just like, well, why don't you just like do this and this? And everyone's like, wait, could we just do this and this? Like she was a fresh set of eyes. Her parents are very chill people. Like in in the German, I'm, I'm Northern German. I'm farmer German. I'm not Bavarian German. So I come from the very strict, very uptight parts of Germany on all sides of my family. <laughs> but my husband comes from the Bavarian parts of Germany. And that they're like, they're like chill about things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's just like, sure, makes sense to me. And it's like, anyway, so it's just, it's wild to me. Although like, I, I get the context that she's in, that all these things she did, people are like, well, I guess she must be mentally unstable or it's like, or she's just chill or she's just yes, like, she is, but this is not it. <laughs> yeah. Or she has empathy like, or she like sees lower class people as humans. She is mentally ill, but these aren't examples of it. Well, and that's the thing, like she didn't see being empress as a job. Again, pulling from that Bavarian background, it wasn't a job. It wasn't a thing she had to do. It wasn't interesting to her. There was no value in it. Going to the hospitals and helping people out and doing good things with her money and helping the people and like giving them permission to do things that just made sense. That that was way more interesting for her than being the empress. Yeah. And they were like, no, your job is to just like be very still and not have a personality, please. Um, And that just like fundamentally did not that's not how she operated. That's not how she could operate. And trying to make that balance is a lot of what exacerbated a lot of her mental health things. So the people liked her, but she wasn't, she wasn't trying to like court their attention or their love. Like you're right. She just wanted to do good things. So her lady in waiting later wrote, 
that CC said about like the attention that she got when she went out, like they're curious whenever there's something to see, they come running for the monkey dancing at the hurdy gurdy, just as much for me. So she was, it, she was sincere in the thing she did. She wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to try to get their attention and love so I can like get more power. She was just like, that was not, that didn't occur to her. She's just like being her. Well, she didn't need to, like, she didn't need to get attention. She, she more Christina, sweet, Christina Sweden things. It's like, me being me is going to get attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's also the whole, like, you don't know you're beautiful situation where it's just like, eventually she does understand the effect that her beauty has on people. But at this point, she's just like, I don't know, people just look at me. I don't know. Like, she truly was just like being herself. And I think that was part of her charisma. But she was just like, this is just me. I don't know. What can I tell you? So she gave birth to their first child 10 months after the wedding. It was a daughter who Sophie named Sophia after herself without consulting Cece. Sophie took complete charge of the baby, refusing to allow Cece to breastfeed or otherwise care for her own child. And this happens with all of her children, except maybe not the last one, which led to health issues. Like when you're, you just gave birth, when you are a person who just gave birth, And you're not permitted to breastfeed the milk like piles up in you. Like you can get infections, like things are swollen. Like this is just like health-wise, not great. Also, she is, you know, 16 and just had a baby. And this affected her very profoundly because she had been close to her mother and close to her own siblings. She then had another child a year later, a second daughter. Is it Gisela? Is that how you'd say that? Gisela. Gisela. Um, There's a woman at my university who is called Gisela. Otherwise, I would have said like Gisela, Gisela. Okay. So anyway, she was born a year later. Sophie also took this baby away. And at this point, there's the whole thing where she's like, oh, of course. Everyone's like, she's not having a son. Oh no, crisis. This made Sophie mad um, because the whole, God, I mean, we're going to get to all this stuff. We're like, you need a son. (laughs) Yeah, your own job. Like, because who's going to be the heir where it's like, we'll just wait to see what happens with that. Anyway, one day she found Cece found a pamphlet on her desk, which was like a passage and there's lines underlined about the natural destiny of a queen is to be given an heir to the throne. It's generally understood. Sophie left that there where it's like, great, thanks. She knows. Some aggressive notes from your mother-in-law. That's what everybody needs. Like as though she's choosing to have daughters on purpose. Like, yeah, I like she knows she is an expectation she should have a son. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for this week of the Vulgar History podcast. Rest assured, the conversation keeps going. And next week, we're going to get into CC part two. If you have thoughts or feedback or suggestions of people you want to hear discussed on this podcast, you can message me at, well, if you go to the website, vulgarhistory.com, there's a form there where you can send me an email or you can also message me on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod. We're also on Twitter at vulgarhistory. If you. I want to get some Vulgar History merch, you can just check out vulgarhistory.store. It's vulgarhistory.store and use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. I don't know. I don't know if what we'll be doing for CC merch. Maybe that's what you can send me a message with suggestions about. But at the moment, we have got um, Mazarinette's merch, Hortense Mancini, various, various in-jokes that you can wear and no one around you may or may not know what it means but anyway shirts stickers mugs various objects that you can buy and the money from that goes to help support this podcast if you are buying books and you want to also support the podcast a little bit with your book purchase if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history or use the link in the show notes you can get basically most of the books that you would be looking for i would presume sometimes the books that i use for research are like out of print so those ones aren't there but newer stuff for sure especially if you want to order for instance lana johnson's books technically you started it or speak for yourself use that link and a bit of money goes to help support the show and finally if you want to also support the show on patreon um if you go to patreon.com slash foster writer so if you pledge one dollar a month or more, you get early access to new episodes of Vulgar History. If you pledge $2 or more a month, you get the early access as well as the ability to vote in polls, such as the poll that the Patreons voted on, where they chose CC. If you pledge $5 or more a month, this is all Canadian dollars, you'll have to do on conversion, I guess, you get access to 
Vulgar Peace Theater episodes, which is where today's guest, Lenoa Johnson, as well as previous guest, Alison Epstein, and I talk about costume dramas from history. Also at that level on Patreon, you get access to So This Asshole episodes, where I talk about gross men from history. But also, at some point, Lana will be joining me to talk about Queen Victoria. Anyway, that's patreon.com slash Writer. And I'll talk to you all next week. So until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Chris. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.